Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Kelly Dry Full Spectrum is produced twice monthly, and show notes are available at www.kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog, comlawmonitor.com. All links are in the show notes. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Hello, and welcome to the Kelly Dry Full Spectrum Podcast. I'm Avani Bell, an associate in the Communications Practice Group, and joining me for today's discussion are... Josh Guyon and Chip Yurkaitis. In this episode, we will continue with our recurring series highlighting key spectrum-related regulatory and policy efforts. A major development in the spectrum arena in recent years has been the prospects for innovative use of higher spectrum bands. These are bands which in the past were generally viewed as unusable for commercial mobile systems due to the limited propagation of the signal and various other technical challenges. However, technological innovations have made these bands more usable and desirable to augment the capacity of mobile networks. As a result, flexible fixed and mobile licenses for millimeter wave band or high band frequencies in the 24, 28, 37, 39, and 47 gigahertz bands are the subject of various auction efforts as part of the FCC's Spectrum Frontiers proceeding. The FCC began its focus on millimeter wave spectrum back in 2014 under then-chairman Tom Wheeler. The prioritization of proceedings targeted in these bands has continued at a somewhat accelerated rate under Chairman Ajit Pai. Chip, can you provide some background on the intense interest in millimeter wave spectrum bands? Sure, Avani. Um, I think it's first uh, important to note that the interest in the millimeter wave spectrum, which is technically between 30 gigahertz and 300 gigahertz, it's not really new. Uh, it's certainly the case that more recently, uh, as a result of the FCC Spectrum Frontier proceeding, uh, which looks to make more spectrum available for flexible, fixed, and mobile use, that uh, there has been more interest. Uh, and in fact, uh, as it's commonly referred to, uh, because of the Spectrum Frontiers proceeding, we're really talking uh, from a regulatory perspective principally about the bands between 24 and 86 gigahertz. But uh, if we could take a step back uh, and look uh, beyond the recent news, uh, the interest in the frequency ranges has been diverse for several decades. Uh, in 1998 and 99, the FCC auction spectrum for uh, LMDS in the 28 and 31 gigahertz bands uh, LMDS, or Local Multipoint Distribution Service, uh, is a broadband wireless access technology originally designed for digital television transmission. Uh, LMDS was conceived as a fixed wireless point-to-point multipoint technology for utilization in the last mile. Uh, and, and that spectrum uh, was uh, made available uh, after the auctions, but not heavily used, uh, which is uh, one of the reasons that the Commission has looked at it uh, in the Spectrum Frontiers proceeding. And similarly, fixed wireless spectrum was made available in the 38.6 to 40 gigahertz band for such purposes. And uh, as Josh and I will uh, refresh people's memories a bit later, we'll be talking about how this spectrum has become the focus of some of the current auction and uh, near future uh, activity. Uh, in addition to the LMDS, uh, Fixed satellite services have used a variety of frequency ranges in the uh, KA band, especially in the 24 to 30 gigahertz range. Uh, 
and uh, services also exist on an intersatellite basis in, in the KA band, both on a federal and non-federal basis. Also want to mention that uh, the commission has made available spectrum uh, both before the recent interest and during it uh, in the what's called the 60 gigahertz range. And this is uh, really comprised of two 7 gigahertz bands, the 57 to 64 gigahertz band, uh, which was already identified as an unlicensed band. In 2013, the commission uh, modified the rules to allow for higher emission limits for 60 gigahertz devices that operated outdoors with very high gain antennas. And the commission was hoping to encourage broadband deployment of point-to-point -point broadband systems as the wireless mobile carriers began to talk more about densification uh, of their networks. Um, and an adjacent 7 gigahertz range, 64 to 71, uh, was made more hospitable for uh, unlicensed devices as part of the Spectrum Frontiers proceeding in 2016. Um, as we get closer to the upper end of the, uh, the so-called millimeter wave or mid-band or high-band range, excuse me, um, 24 to 86 gigahertz, the frequencies between 71 and 76 and 81 to 86 gigahertz, which the Commission did look at in the Spectrum Frontiers proceeding for possible mobile use, they've uh, been preserved for now. Uh, principally for fixed links, which uh, operate pursuant to a framework that was put in place over a decade ago, and there are now tens of thousands of, of such deployments in the United States. But having said all of that, uh, there's no doubt there's a greater interest in the millimeter wave spectrum uh, by the commercial mobile industry in the last few years. And this is due principally in part to several technological breakthroughs, uh, including uh, massive MIMO and beam forming, which make these high-frequency bands prospectively useful in a manner that wasn't generally conceived uh, just a decade ago. Okay, great. Thanks. Great setup for um, our discussion here today. Um, I think, you know, there's been a lot of discussion within the communications industry, both in the commercial space and the government, and you see it all over the press about 5G and America's position in this race to deploy this technology. Can one of you share some insight on this topic? What is the connection between millimeter wave efforts and the discussions about 5G? Sure. Yeah, I can start with that. Um, you know, I think as, as Chip was mentioning, there, you know, there have been these technological uh, advancements that have um, <clears throat> made this higher frequency spectrum um, more usable for, for mobile techno technologies, as we're saying. And the physics involved in these um, higher frequencies offer the potential for um, very high speeds and very high capacity, right, which can be a great thing for, for mobile networks as we're more, all of us are using more and more data on our mobile phones uh, and devices. Um, it allows, you know, gigabits per second type speeds um, or approaching gigabits per second, um, fiber-like speeds with low latency uh, and very high capacity. But of course, it only travels very short distances um, and doesn't penetrate walls or trees or things like that as well um, as lower band spectrum, um, which is why we're talking about you know, small cells and, and uh, lots of antennas for, for the build-out. Um, it's also the other advantage here is uh, for this uh, these higher frequency bands is that they're available in much larger kind of contiguous bands than the lower bands that are more encumbered already. And so, you know, you have these large swaths of spectrum that can, that are either, you know, less densely used or can be moved around a bit more easily. Um, the incumbents can be moved around a little bit more easily to, to give you contiguous um, spectrum. And so that's, that's 
more available at the higher frequencies. Um, however, millimeter wave um, is not the the total solution for 5G. I mean, 5G is a larger story of how you know how we get to 5G and win the race to 5G. Um, it's going to include low, mid, and higher band spectrum. Um, in fact, T-Mobile's CTO recently uh, said in a blog post that millimeter wave will never reach rural America, and T-Mobile's strategy um, for 5G will include. It's low band spectrum that that it won in the incentive auction, uh, 600 uh, megahertz uh, years ago, um, as well as potentially Sprint's mid band spectrum, but if, if the merger goes through, of course, um, and then you know mi- uh, millimeter wave as well. And I think the other carriers have similar kind of um, strategies there. Perhaps not all the same, different mixes. I think Sprint not so much at the higher and more kind of low and mid band, um, but I think you know they're all going to be using. Um, AT&T strategy, for example, would be using uh, lower uh, frequencies for rural areas and perhaps the millimeter wave for for more dense urban environments. Yeah, and I think some of the uh, the recent press, uh, particularly since the uh, 24 gigahertz uh, auction ended, uh, in which some of the carriers are uh, you know voicing uh, not so much concerns but observations how important the the midband spectrum will be, which we're not covering in depth today. But I hope we'll be talking about that in a future podcast very soon. Um, that uh, part of this is because the the rest of the world, uh, and by that we mean Europe and and East Asia in particular, uh, they're already starting to auction off uh, significant amounts of midband spectrum, and uh, that's seen as a critical uh, sort of first stage five uh, G deployment uh, area. And so I think the, uh, the, the, the carriers are, are recognized some of the limitations that millimeter wave spectrum has. But that, that's been known uh, all along that uh, each of the bands have you know, different roles to play in 5G rollout. Okay, great. Yeah. And um, Chip, you just mentioned the 24 gigahertz band auction. We, As we mentioned earlier, there are five different spectrum bands that are part of the Spectrum Frontiers proceedings right now that are at various stages of the auction launch process. The 28 gigahertz band auction, which was the first involving millimeter wave spectrum, was completed in January. And the 24 gigahertz ended last week. They've both garnered a total of almost $2.7 billion dollars. Can you talk about what are the types of licenses that parties bid on in these auctions? Also, what has been the reaction to the results of the auction? Sure, yeah, just to kind of break that down even a little bit further. Um, the first of these auctions, the 20 gigahertz, that was auction 101, um, started in November and ended in January. Um, that was They brought in about just over $700 million in, in that auction. There were just over 3,000 um, upper microwave flexible use service, or UMFAS, licenses. Um, those are the... T- uh, the licenses that are being um, um, offered in the, in these um, uh, Spectrum Frontiers bands, um, they were uh, licensed by county, um, which are slightly smaller than um, partial economic areas. Um, and there's a, a total of 850 megahertz that was auctioned off in that um, in two 425 megahertz blocks. Um, the second auction, 102, just completed as you mentioned uh, last week. Um, they, that brought in just under $2 billion for another roughly 3,000 UMFIS licenses, 2,909. Um, those were licensed by Partial Economic Area, um, PEA. Um, and um, the, the lower segment was licensed as two 100 megahertz blocks, the A and B block, and then the upper segment as five 100 megahertz blocks. Um, both of them authorized UMFIS licenses for both fixed and mobile operations, and the way they described it is any services permitted under a fixed or mobile allocation. So it's a very broad uh, kind of license. 
Um, as far as the reactions to that or what we kind of take away from from these auctions, you know, I've seen, you know, mixed um, comments in, in trade press. There's certainly been some some positive um, trade press related to the to those outcomes. But I think it's it's helpful to keep in mind um, the the relative values of this higher frequency spectrum to some of the auctions in the, of the past with lower um, frequencies. I mean, it, in the 600 megahertz uh, broadcast incentive auction, um, which closed back in March of 2017, um, that repurposed 84 megahertz of spectrum. So 70 megahertz for licensed use and another 14 for wireless microphones and unlicensed. The auction yielded close to $20 billion. So about $10 billion for um, paying the, the broadcasters, you know, in the incentive uh, auction portion, and then more than $7 billion for the treasury. Um, in this case, in the 28 and 24 gigahertz auctions, 101 and 102, they auctioned 1,550 megahertz, and as you mentioned, got about 200, or, I'm sorry, 2.7 billion dollars. Um, so obviously, it gives you a, a sense of the relative value of of the higher versus lower end spectrum. Yeah, one thing I'd point out in addition, Josh, is that the uh, the 28 gigahertz uh, spectrum was already fairly heavily encumbered because the commission, as part of the Spectrum Frontiers proceeding, when it created the UMFA service and, and also uh, identified the 28 gigahertz spectrum for auction, uh, it, it, it grandfathered uh, the existing licensees, which had been LMDS licensees. Uh, another comparison uh, that might be worth making because it, uh, it, it, gathered, it garnered so much attention at the time was the AWS-3 auction, which was for uh, 2155 to 2180 megahertz, as well as 1755 to 1780 uh, megahertz. Uh, you know, for the, uh, the 50 megahertz of spectrum available, uh, that was $45 billion. Um, and, you know, so essentially uh, you have, uh, you know, one-fourteenth amount of spectrum and 20 times as much. So, yes, there was some criticism uh, or concern perhaps, depending upon your perspective, about the results of the auction. But, but as some of the uh, the, the proponents that put a more positive spin on it, they did note that uh, you know anyone purchasing millimeter wave uh, licenses would have to account for the substantial infrastructure costs associated with building out the millimeter wave network because of the the shorter propagation distances. I mean, we were talking 500 feet, 1,000 feet uh, for most uh, individual deployments, and uh, the unproven uh, business case for some of the millimeter wave spectrum. So it's, it, it's, it's, a lot of it's a question of timing uh, as much as it is uh, you know, a pure, uh, you know, how many dollars per megahertz per pop, which uh, the analysts like to look at. Right. Um, one additional point on the 24 gigahertz chip. There were some concerns raised about the rules that the FCC adopted for that ban, right, and the imp impact that the auction might have on existing federal weather systems that are in nearby bands. Is that still an issue for winning bidders? Is there going to be concern about potential interference? Well, there, there's always a concern about potential interference uh, with with. Uh, other services with with which you're sharing the spectrum, or it might be an adjacent band. I think in the case of uh, the meteorological uh, uses that were the subject of some uh, opposition uh, that was generated through the Congress uh, and and communications with the Commission right before the auction. In a way, that was a, a question of a, a too little, too late. Uh, I mean, these issues were vetted uh, when the Commission adopted its rules. 
And, uh, you know, they were resolved in the rulemaking uh, before the auction, uh, well before the auction, and, you know, including presumably with buy-in, reluctant or not, from uh, NTIA and the affected government agencies. Um, you know, it's quite possible because this process is often political that if that outcry had occurred earlier, it might have had a different uh, impact. Uh, but the thing to keep in mind is that, uh, you know, if there if there is, as the 24 gigahertz spectrum deployed, uh, instances of interference that were perhaps more than what was expected when the rules were adopted, uh, that's something that uh, the commission and NTIA would have the opportunity to intervene because I, I don't think anyone questions whether the uh, meteorological purposes are an important mission to be protected. Uh, but those those issues uh, are looked at beforehand, and uh, it's also a good reminder that um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, despite the obvious and important technical issues that are involved with questions of spectrum management and operational compatibility between services, uh, we also have a very political process here when it comes to spectrum in the United States. Right. There's bipartisan interest, but differing perspectives on the exact usage and allocation. Um, so let's turn now to some future plans. The FCC recently announced that it plans to begin the next millimeter wave auction. This would involve the 37, 39, and 47 gigahertz bands. And this auction is supposed to launch in December of 2019. The plan for this auction would actually involve the use of an incentive auction model. Josh, you mentioned the initial incentive auction, and that's the only other incentive auction the FCC has ever done. And so we see for this one, the FCC is planning to have a reverse auction as a component to address some existing encumbrances and hopefully incentivize some incumbent users to give up their bans. Can you provide some additional thoughts on the plans for this um, future auction? Sure, yeah, and I think it's important to con kind of contrast here the difference between why they didn't do something like that in the 28 uh, and 24 gigahertz auctions um, as opposed to why they're they're planning to do that in, in this upcoming auction in December. Um, you know, um, in the 28 and the 24 gigahertz band auctions, um, the, the, the FCC determined it really wasn't necessary to have a reverse auction or an incentive auction as a component of it um, as, when they were developing their band plan um, because of the licensees that were already there. Chip mentioned the LMDS that were there. And, and um, at the time that those were authorized, um, they were uh, fixed, but they also had the potential for, for mobile. It was you know known at the time that LMDS potentially could move into um, a mobile license as well. Um, and, and that had to be something that the incumbents and the, and the satellite operators that are also in the band were aware of, um, as well as the fact that the, the satellite incumbents there are, are, are secondary. Um, and so the, the FCC decided they would give the incumbent LMDS licensees there the mobile capability. So they're getting something, and um, they thought that the, uh, the satellite interest uh, incumbents could be, could be protected with the band plan that they developed. Um, further, there's some uh, NGSO or, or non-geostationary satellite operators in, in the band like O3B. Um, the FCC determined that they really had no reasonable expectation that, that the um, commission would, would um, um, not have mobile operators in, in the area. So they were you know, should have been aware that there was potential for mobile operations in, in these bands that they would have to be addressed. Um, on the other hand, for auction 103 upcoming for the 39 gigahertz band, um, 
that band was was authorized by both PEA and before that they were, it was authorized by um, Rectangular Service Area or RSA, um, and the RSAs could cross PEAs or be enveloped by them. Um, a number of them did not fit within the band plan for the 39 gigahertz, which was 100 megahertz um, blocks, um, and so you would end up with a bunch of the the licenses to be auctioned that were encumbered in a way that the FCC thought would um, impact the value um, for the for the auction, and so in that that situation is when the FCC says, all right, well, we need to um, find a way to to move some of the existing incumbents um, around in the band or in this case, potentially even you know, have take money to, to no longer have a license, right? Similar to what happened with the broadcasters. Um, they first tried a voluntary approach. So in um, June of 2018, the FCC opened up um, basically a voluntary process where you could have individualized um, private negotiations um, to, to move these licenses. And um, so the FCC authorized, you know, spectrum swaps and nothing happened. So nobody, nobody did it. Um, and so they had to kind of rethink the process and, and in the, um, Spectrum Frontier's fourth report in order in December of last year, um, the FCC adopted the incentive auction approach um, that, will, that will be part of the initial kind of clock phase of, of the auction um, to clear the incumbents from the 39 gigahertz band. And they have a choice. They can uh, have their licenses modified based on the FCC's proposed reconfiguration. They can modify their license based on um, their, own, their own proposed alternative reconfigurations. That, and there are some conditions on that, right? They have to yield the same or fewer weighted megahertz pops. Um, or they can uh, commit to relinquish their licenses um, in exchange for an incentive payment or the ability to bid for new licenses like a voucher um, type thing. So they have a number of different options that they can go for as part of this auction. Okay. Now we're going to look at some other additional high-band spectrum. The FCC has been looking at taking action on the 26 gigahertz and 42 gigahertz. What are the interests in this area, Chip? How do these bands differ from those which the FCC has already chosen to auction off? Well, um, each of the bands is a little bit different in, in what its history is and what the incumbent users are. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the interest in these bands uh, for, you know, potential use by the commercial mobile industry uh, through, through UMFIS uh, identifications and auctions is pretty much the same as with the others. I mean, it's more high band spectrum uh, that could be used to support uh, 5G and, and and other services. So the interest from the commercial mobile industry is 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 largely the same, although it might differ depending upon how the auction is conducted and, and what the uh, protections are with regard to other services. Uh, with regard to the 42 uh, gigahertz uh, band, this is a 500 megahertz um, range of spectrum. Uh, it had been the subject of a rulemaking uh, by the uh, fixed wireless. Uh, Coalition uh, some years ago, with, uh, that that uh, rulemaking petition is still pending, um, but it's more likely now. I think that the uh, the interest in flexible and mobile use, not just increased flexible use, uh, excuse me, fixed use of the band, will probably overtake uh, the earlier interest that was manifest in the uh, fixed wireless coalition petition. Uh, the the twenty six gigahertz band is. Uh, uh, a little more interesting and complex uh, because this band is um, used today by um, a number of uh, other users. Uh, and we're talking here just to be a little more specific about the 2525 gigahertz band uh, up through the um, 27.5 gigahertz band. 
Um, the other users uh, include uh, the Department of Defense, which uses the Spectrum for Aeronautical Mobile, uh, as well as, I believe, fixed services. And uh, NASA has a uh, inter-satellite service uh, there, the, uh, the TDRS service, Tracking and Data Relay Satellite System, uh, which uh, is used by NASA and, and some of the other United States government agencies for communications to and from independent user platforms uh, such as other satellites, but also including balloons and aircraft, uh, the International Space Station, uh, among other users. Um, so uh, that's, that's what's already in place in this band, but there are also other proposals for the use of this band. Uh, Elefante Group, uh, which I should mention is, is one of our clients, filed a petition for rulemaking in May of last year uh, to gain access to the spectrum on a shared basis uh, for stratospheric-based communication services, uh, and they're hoping to provide uh, high-capacity, low-latency point-to-point uh, connections uh, as well as uh, uh, residential and broadband internet service on a wholesale basis. Um, and uh, there's increasing interest in this same 26 gigahertz spectrum for uh, Earth Exploration Satellite Service, or EESS as it's known, both on a commercial and a federal uh, basis. Uh, and in fact, one of the commission's items that's up for consideration at the next open meeting in early May, uh, the uh, NGSO application of Thea. Uh, hopes to use, in addition to other bands, hopes to use the, uh, the 26 gigahertz band for those types of uh, communications, EESS-related communications, although the commission has said it's going to defer uh, consideration of that proposal uh, as it considers in the larger sense in the Spectrum Frontiers proceeding how the, that spectrum might be used. And, and I wanted to add just one other point that, uh, you know, in addition to 26 and 42, uh, there, there are a number of other uh, bands which are of interest uh, to various parties within that millimeter wave range, which again commonly is considered sort of the 24 to 86 as, as a result of the Spectrum Frontiers proceeding, uh, identifying that, that frequency range. Um, the satellite services um, have been very actively involved in a major part of the Spectrum Frontiers proceeding, and in fact in the uh, the order, the third report in order, the, the commission identified two two gigahertz wide bands as uh, core satellite spectrum. Uh, and there's certainly been a lot of interest in the millimeter wave spectrum as part of the uh, large number of NGSO applications and petitions for market entry uh, that were filed in late 2016 and early 2017 in the uh, two processing rounds following the OneWeb application uh, in the KU and KA bands, and then the Boeing application in the Q and V bands. Um, and some of those have been granted, others are, are still pending. You know, NTIA is also uh, under a directive from the president uh, in, in conjunction with consultation with other agencies to develop a national spectrum strategy. And I think it'll be very interesting to see uh, how NTIA tries to balance the various interests uh, in all of the spectrum, but particularly in the millimeter wave spectrum where there's been so much uh, increased interest lately. Uh, and in fact, uh, just earlier this week, OSTP 
delivered its report to the president under the commission's presidential memorandum on a national spectrum strategy uh, re regarding uh, emerging communications technologies. Uh, and I'm sure they had some things to say about uh, these, these bands. So, I mean, it seems that, you know, in these in these bands, there are uh, a number of different players that are coming in to provide various services, but including some of them also uh, broadband services, right? So it's not just, you know, your traditional terrestrial carriers, um, obviously seeking a lot of the Spectrum Frontiers um, bands to provide mobile broadband, but there are also others um, that are, you know, coming in, the NGSOs, the Elefantes, things like that coming in to also use, you know, bands to provide broadband. So, you know, the carrier, the traditional carriers are not, you know, obviously the only solution for broadband everywhere, um, of course. And in many cases, they may be able to use some of these other services as well as, as part of their, their network. Okay. Any additional commentary on the millimeter wave spectrum proceedings or f what should we see going forward or look for going forward? Where do I start? No, I, <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, we could go on forever. There's I a lot happening. Could. Well, Chip and Josh, thank you for an enlightening conversation on the desire for a millimeter wave spectrum and the state of government efforts to revise rules and reallocate the spectrum usage in order to allow access for mobile and other new technologies. As the FCC continues to stress the quote-unquote race to 5G and we see a con just growth in connected devices, we're sure to see a host of spectrum-related proceedings. Um, for the next in our Spectrum series, we plan to address the mid-band spectrum developments addressing 3 to 7 gigahertz bands. Thank you for joining us and stay tuned for the latest communications law developments. For, inf for more information on topics discussed today or related matters, check out our blog, Comlaw Monitor. Thanks, Abney. Thank it's you. been fun. Thanks. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views or ideas held by Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff, or management.